Hello and welcome to another episode of the Trapped Offside podcast. I'm Safwan here, and alongside me, as usual, is Abdurrahman Khalife. And today we have another fellow masochist, I mean, another fellow Arsenal fan, Mahmoud Jabir, on with us today. Mahmoud, how are you doing? Not well, for obvious reasons. I'm an Arsenal fan. I'm three days clean now. And thank you guys for having me. It's an honor, it's a joy, it's a pleasure, it's a lot of pain, but I'm glad to be with you guys today. Okay. I'm telling you, blood. He's okay, fam. He's okay, fam. Just don't get him in, in the zone, blood. Don't get him in the zone, blood. He'll go on a ramp, blood. What's your um fan blood ratio? My fan blood ratio? Yep. For, for, for anybody who's listening, I'm clearly not from the UK. So I, I'm familiar with fan blood, of course, both of those terms. I, I prefer blood. <laughs> blood is more my thing. I love fam. I'm huge on fam. I'm nothing without my fam. But my bloods, my bloods know who this day is fam. Shit, I said fam. I, I guess it's it one to one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, on to the news. So, before we get on to the story of the week with Marcus Rashford itself. I just want to give a bit of context to the type of person that Marcus Rashford has shown himself to be. Because it's not the first time he's been charitable or, you know, been kind to people. I think the first major reported story of Rashford, you know, helping out in society was back in 2017 when there was the terrorist attack at the Manchester Arena. So when that happened, Marcus Rashford and Jesse Lingard, they went to the Manchester Children's Hospital so they could, you know, spend time with the kids over there. And this was at a time when Rashford was, what, 18, 19? Yeah. Marcus Rashford has been someone that was brought up in what you would probably describe like difficult circumstances. And he hasn't forgotten how it feels to be that way. And he's spent a lot of his time making sure that he can prevent other people from being that way. So Marcus Rashford's birthday is the same date as Halloween. Mm -hmm. And there was a story from a reporter where basically... Rashford was in a car and the, the there was a lady in the passenger seat and she basically told these kids that were trick-or-treating to sing happy birthday to Rashford because he's turning 21. And they did and he was so happy he pulled out 20-pound notes and started giving them to all the kids. There's a story of uh, the Christmas campaign that they did. It was called In the Box. They worked with oh, yeah. companies like Selfridges. And essentially, they themselves were, you know, out there physically handing out um, boxes during during Christmas, I think. They donated over 1,200 boxes to various people, including the homeless. I, I think it was actually targeted at giving it to homeless people. So it's lovely to see. And then before the government U-turn right now, even in the previous months, Rashford was working with a company called Fairshare, 
which basically, if I'm not mistaken, they recycle or resupply foods that are still, you know, under the expiration date, but they're, they're surplus uh, from stores and whatnot. And they decided to do fundraising to, to help feed poor people. And I think their initial target was about a hundred thousand pounds, and then they ended up raising millions. So Rashford has been doing a lot for the poor, for the vulnerable, for kids, and that brings us to to what happened now, which was basically Rashford was pushing that the kids who during school time come from poor families, they essentially get vouchers for free meals. And because of the, the coronavirus situation, he wanted that pushed beyond the usual terms of school. And he wanted that to be, you know, pushed on throughout the summer because the, the whole coronavirus situation has made it so much harder for poor families and poor parents to provide for their kids. And the government initially rejected that idea until he put even more pressure on people got behind him on Twitter and started writing letters to their MPs and the government did a U-turn and they've announced an extension of the of the the program so that is going to help feed so many so many you know poor poor kids it's going to help them not starve and i think at 22 years of age that is just something incredible to see from Marcus Rashford. Yeah, I mean, he's a genuinely good human. There's a case about a month ago when um, there was this video that went viral of a young kid called Kieran. He's a young black kid with autism, actually. And he was being racially abused by two children that were slightly older than him. They're basically telling him, Kieran, kiss my shoe to kiss their shoes so Marcus Rashford somehow found this video flagged that up uh, got in touch with Kieran uh, invited him to the next game whenever that is at Old Trafford when fans are allowed back in he sent them a t-shirt some boots to be fair Jesse Lingard did that as well so a couple of the United boys uh, rallied around it and really looked after him but because of Marcus and because of what he spoke about the person that was actually racially abusing the kid went and actually gave him a a genuine and honest apology. So again, it just goes to show even little things like that, if he hears any way he can make somebody's day, he goes and does it. He goes on multiple Q&As with fans, gives them encouragement and genuinely helps out people. He's Venmoed £500, £1,000 to people who have shown that they're in need He's actually paid tuition fees for two or three university kids as well. So he's always been active and out in the, in the community and he's really helped everyone out in that respect. So I've got massive respect for him. There's also that story about how a deaf kid wrote to him asking for him to be judge in their world poetry competition, something oh, yeah. of that name. And he decided to start learning uh, sign language so he can see he can see them recite their poetry and judge them on the competition and i think he's promised that once this whole pandemic situation goes away and he's able to physically hand out the awards he will do that 
yeah, I mean, th- didn't he go on Good Morning Britain and talk about that? Actually, I think I saw it there. But yeah, he, he came out and he was on, I think it was Good Morning Britain. And he's actually quite good at signing now. And he, he, he was signing, I think, for two, three minutes on the show, uh, showing just how far ahead he's come with, with his sign language. So yeah, that's one of many things that, that Marcus has done. That's something I really respect about him. Such a huge turnaround as well. Jesse Lingard almost got him, almost got him down that rabbit hole of, uh, you know, you know how Jesse Lingard turned out. There was, there was, there was a period of time where I, I remember seeing, <laughs> there was a period of time where I remember seeing Marcus Rashford and Jesse Lingard hanging out a little bit too much. And I saw a picture of Marcus Rashford wearing a necklace that said Rashi on it. And I feared the worst, but I can see now. That young Rashi has turned things around in quite an amazing way, and uh, especially taking on the UK government. Like that takes such incredible character, honestly, to take that stance and and to use your platform that kind of way. I mean, Can we praise Jose Mourinho because he started making him into a left wing? <laughs> oh my God! Where did you see that? Huh? <laughs> wow. One sec. Safwan with the Mourinho propaganda. You know what? Left wing, my man. This is probably the weirdest, the weirdest podcast you're probably going to listen to in our time at, at Trapped Offside. You're not going to hear a more weird podcast. Safwan's are here coming out and praising Jose Mourinho for something that he's done. It was just the left wing pun that he I was to trying make to it, make. Yeah. I had to make it, but it was I, I'm taking that as a, a as a dub for Mourinho FC. <laughs> <laughs> it mean, the man did get drugged by the score of 76 goals per season. That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> that was 46. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, though. I mean, if, if you're taking time out of your day to reply to Paul Merson, then you really are bored and you have nothing else to do in your life. MJ, what do you have for us? Um, just a general sort of observation after uh, former Arsenal scout Gil Grimandi. Grimandi. I'm going to pronounce a lot of things wrong right now. Uh, just how I feel that this time, there's going to be a lot more scrutiny on the Arsenal board and the administration, the executives at Alisson Yeh and the like, um, because I think Arteta has bought himself of a great amount of goodwill with his press conferences, how he's communicated his vision for the club, how he's trying to adopt a culture of buying in, no negotiation training, etc. The kind of buzzwords and talk that Arsenal fans have sort of been longing for for, for years. So I think his you know, position as a former player, the way he came in the middle of the season, sort of steadied the ship in some ways. We had a good run of form before the whole global pandemic happened. I think he's, um, he's, he's safe in that regard, but... Uh, former Arsenal scout Gil Grimandi had some choice words about the decision-making that has gone into a lot of the transfers that Arsenal have made over the last year and a half, namely loaning out William Saliba while loaning in Pablo Mari and David Luiz's contract situation, basically leading to this situation where Arsenal have a young, talented centre-back on loan at a French team where he got injured 
when he could have been gaining experience with the first team in England instead of Palomar, instead of David Luiz. You know, it's everything is twenty twenty in hindsight, but the fact that he is calling them out in this regard, I thought was interesting. But the finger could be pointed at him as well because towards the last few years of Arsenal's Wenger uh, era, let's face it, the uh, the transfer in, in, the transfers we had incoming were um, questionable at, at, at best. So just a sort of general state of malaise about the club. And, you know, I think it's all well and good to say that it's a process and trust the process. But as soon as you feel that L, as soon as uh, Mopay scores the uh, winner at the end, that's all out the window and the meltdowns begin. So, yeah, just general musings about Arsenal's transfer strategy and the board and their ambition. I think that's fair enough. If you... I don't know if you've heard about Kia Jurabichian's uh, comments. He's he's representing David Luiz at the moment, and he's a long-time agent of Carlos Tevez, Javier Mascherano, etc. Yeah. I don't know if you heard about how he spoke about the lack of structure at Arsenal and and basically what how, how they're going about transfers. He said that the contract situation has dragged on, not because of any reason, not because of the will of either Arsenal or David Luiz to finalise it or because the situation that has occurred with the pandemic. But when you have 14 days left and you're at a critical point where you need to make a decision, Arsenal need to be able to make decisions. However, people at the top, unlike before with Wenger, where it was just his decision with one or two scouts here or there, there's multiple decision makers and they're split on David Luiz. And it was quite interesting to see, and I wanted to gauge your thoughts, both of you, on that. Is there now a lack of structure at Arsenal? And if so, how are they going to solve that? Because they bought in Sven Binstat, and he, for whatever reason, didn't work out. And they've decided to diversify everything a bit more. And now they're not able to make decisions that should be blatantly obvious in uh, David Luiz. It's always difficult to talk about the backroom structure of clubs and whatnot because of the lack of information that's available, you know. It's one thing to be able to talk about tactics and the players that are on the pitch, the way they've performed, because that's something you've actually seen. But when you're talking about the structure at Arsenal, you don't have the access to information to really make a proper informed opinion about it. And I think a lot of people, when they're talking about it, they just sort of bend the facts to suit whatever they're talking about. Yeah. See, at Arsenal, for example, I've seen a lot of people completely split on Raul. And then when he had the whole situation with Sven Mislintat, and the situation, by the way, was essentially that Sven Mislintat wanted a a larger role at Arsenal. He wanted to be essentially the, the technical director, the director of football. But yeah. his his role at the time was just that he was a chief scout. Apparently, Gazidis had promised him that he would have a more expanded role, but then Gazidis left. So It's a cultural so, fit, by the way. It's a cultural thing because chief scouts in Germany are the key decision makers and technical directors in Germany, and this is just 
maybe explaining why Sven might have been felt a bit aggrieved when he came into Arsenal. Chief scouts have control over all transfers. They have control over everything and they've got the final decision. In England, it's different. So in England, you've got either a director of football or a technical director. The chief scout is just the guy that heads the scouting department. And he's the one that gives the final decision from the department. It might be true in general for a German football. I'm not too sure, but I don't think it was true for Sven because he left Dortmund after being banned from the training ground for about a year because he got into a couple of issues with Tichel and Watzke, I think, is the person yeah. in charge of yeah BVB. Essentially, he's the one that sidelined him. Essentially, it was a disagreement over the signing of, I think it was Olivier Torres, and it just led to a whole bus stop where the club ultimately sided against uh, Sven. And that led to his eventual departure to, to Arsenal. I think it's a bit much, if I'm giving my personal uninformed opinion, it's that... I've looked at what he's done, Sven, and I didn't see how he was experienced enough to ask for a role that big at Arsenal. You look at who they've brought in since um, Edu, and he had that position at Corinthians. He's worked mm-hmm. in, the, in the board for the Brazilian national team. So he, he has that experience working in that type of role, but Sven Mislintat did not. And... Do you know what? When he was when he announced his departure, there was a whole lot of talk that all the biggest clubs in the world are gonna go after him. You had talk that maybe he's gonna end up at Tottenham, you had talk that maybe he's gonna end up at Bayern Munich. And then he didn't. I think if I'm not mistaken, he's at Stuttgart now. So He is, yeah. Yeah, so I'm in communication with him. He's uh Oh, uh, yeah. I see. Okay, so so if Ark is saying something positive about Sven Mislintat, then you know we know it's all biased. But but jo- jokes aside, though, the reason I brought up that point is when he was leaving. What I was seeing was if we had any bad signing, it was attributed to Emery or Raul. And if we had any good signing, it was attributed to Sven Mislanta. And then the people that didn't like him, they were doing the opposite thing. So you had a situation where Ganduzi, for example, in all of his interviews that I've seen in which he talks about signing for Arsenal, he talks about Emery and how Emery knew him from, I think, the team that he was... I know he was a former PSG product, but not from there. It was He was playing for a second division team and they met uh, PSG in the cup. They lost pretty badly, yeah. but but that, that's where Emery knew him from and that Emery had shown an interest in signing for him and he convinced them to join Arsenal and that's why he joined. There's no mention of Sven Mislinta. That doesn't mean that Sven Mislinta hadn't identified him. It's, it's entirely possible, but... I think you would attribute that signing to Emery based on the interviews that were given. But then you have people that were anti-Emery, pro-Sven Mislintat, that were saying, no, 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 he was definitely not an Emery signing, he was was a Sven Mislintat signing. And it's just a lot of scenarios where people are pretty much twisting whatever facts 
that they can find to suit their opinion. It's very hard to get into a discussion about that. When we speak about Raul, all I hear from people that don't like the direction that Arsenal is heading towards is all the signings that he's making or for some reason he's doing favors to to his agent friends. That's literally what the narrative is. And I find it a bit ridiculous because if Raul is good at his job, that means he has good relationships with the agents of players that we're going to be signing. So the top players are represented by top agents. It's, I know there are a lot more agents, but generally the trend is that if there's a top player, Raul probably has an existing working relationship with his agent. Absolutely. And that should be a great thing. That should be a great thing for Arsenal because that means that it makes it easier for us to negotiate and to communicate with the agent, with that player's you know, entourage. And it's just going to make that easier even to sign for him. But then that's one way to have it. There's another way to spin the fact is that after that player is signed, you post the fact that Raul had an existing working relationship with that player's agent. So maybe the reason we signed that player was simply because Raul is friends with his agent. And, and, and that's pretty much exactly what I'm seeing. People on either side of the debate, and they're just twisting the facts, the same exact facts to suit their narrative. You see, the thing is, when you're Arsenal Football Club, you've only got a select number of players around the world that can make Arsenal Football Club better than what they are yesterday. And rightly so. The best players, the people that can advance Arsenal, are represented by the same agents. And anyone that's saying that, oh, Arsenal signed X player because Raul is good friends with the agent, that's not going to be the case. Raul would be signing a player because he's the best fit for Arsenal, according to him. You see, if you're talking about smaller teams, when you're talking about smaller profiles, say, for example, you're working in, I don't know, Lithuania or Bulgaria, and you have a good re- existing relationship with the director of football there, then yeah, they could pull in rank and say, I've got an existing relationship with Abdul. I'm going to sign one of his players. But when it comes to Arsenal, and I represent a player, I'm just going to say Nicola Pepe, for example. If I represented Nicola Pepe, and Raul had an existing relationship with me. He's not signing Nicola Pepe over um, Irving Lozano because he's good mates with me. He signs Nicola Pepe because he's the best option out there for Arsenal. And I think sometimes people just don't understand the actual relationship between an agent and a director of football and how much of an impact having a relationship with that director of football actually has on transfers. I think for what it's worth, Raul has had, he's done a very good job so far at Arsenal, irrespective of what people are going to think or what they're going to say. I think for once now, there's actually um, an identity there. And I'm talking to Arsenal this summer and based on the type of transfer they're looking for, for the first time ever, they're actually telling me about the culture, what they're looking for in terms of an actual player personality. My agency's built around redefining the human element and understanding the club culture and what they stand for. And 
genuinely when I speak to Arsenal, what I get is, oh, I'm looking for a player capable of doing this, this and that. There's never really a focus on culture. And whether that's Mikel or whether that's Raul, there's a focus on the culture this year and there's focus on who they're signing. I just thought I'd, I'd add that in. So they're coming through and they're they're saying we want a, a guy who's kind of shy, but he, who's easy to get along with at parties and maybe he's got a decent singing voice, so he's good around the lads. And uh, also uh, he makes a really nice uh, cheese Danish. He, he likes to bake, but... <laughs> Not necessarily. So I'll, I'll give you an example. It won't necessarily be an Arsenal example, but I will give you an example of what's meant by it. Say, for example, a Zlatan personality, which is an alpha personality, that sometimes doesn't mesh well with a certain squad that you're trying to build or a certain vision that you're trying to build. So a club would tell us that we're looking for someone who is responsive to the manager. They listen. At the same time, they've got good work ethic. They'll ask people out on the training ground. They put in extra training. They're a good personality to have in and around the, the, the dressing room. They're bubbly. They, they're polygots, so they can get around and communicate with more than one culture group, per se. So that's just kind of like one thing that clubs are putting more and more emphasis on. It's an emphasis on can these people fit into the culture that we're trying to build? So if you take a look at Mikhail Arteta and what he's trying to build, he's trying to build a team that's technically very smart, but they've actually got grit and grind and determination to do something. If you realise one thing that we all say about Arsenal under Mikel Arteta is they're not necessarily folding in and giving up. If they're losing, they're losing because of defensive mistakes, not because they're giving up on the game. And I think there's a shift in that mentality that has been there from when Emery was there to when Mikel Arteta has been there. And I think you take a look at the players now, and that's obviously the, the, the kind of people that he's working with and he's inherited but going forward what they're looking for is somebody that can actually fight but is actually technically able to, to perform at a high level well as much as i want to see arteta succeed i think we're still very much in the honeymoon phase and it's too early to say whether arsenal whether whether this can be maintained this culture and this whether the players will continue to buy into it whether the kind of players Arsenal can attract and afford will be able to sustain that level of quality that Arteta is looking for because, like you're saying, he's looking for a very technical style of play. He's a student of Guardiola, a student of Wenger. He's not looking to hoof it up to the, mm-hmm. to the tall lad in front to uh, knock it down to his teammate. Um, but I think in general with Arsenal, it's, it's, a, it's a situation that resembles any kind of uh, power structure falling apart any kind of organization once uh, leadership changes. So you go from Wenger, and I again, I also sprinkle some salt over this with what Stefan was saying about how we really don't have the information to make informed opinions about these kind of things. But you go from the kind of reign that Wenger had with a very concentrated amount of power to all these decision makers all of a sudden. Uh, it's a bit like, you know, the the empire if you want is rebuilding itself and who will who will actually last these positions and Mr. Tatter was a casualty but uh, what will the case be in the future I think it's interesting that Arteta has been brought into some some um, squad discussions about, about wages, he's been brought into some contract um, issues between players to, to handle them personally so I think that's actually a, mo- a nod back to Wenger's uh, position at Arsenal. A little bit less than Emery, 
the pure head coach who who trains the team and who coordinates for transfers but doesn't have a say in them. And a little bit more trust in Arteta to, to make some board-level decisions or executive decisions. I think that's a... Well, the thing is, I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong. <laughs> Again, I know that for a fact that there's a power split in Arsenal. And the problem with Arsenal at the moment is I don't actually know who's making that final decision because there's so many voices that they've decided that there has to be someone with a little bit more power. And like you said, with Unai Emery, he was purely the coaching side of things and he wasn't really involved in the transfers and getting around to the decision-making. I think Mikel Arteta, he's not quite getting the Wenger, you're free to do what you want, you make the final decision thing. But I think what he's having now is there's more weight. And that's not just Mikel Arteta, that's also Oli Solskjaer. And while everyone says, yeah, Edward Wood does this, Edward Wood does that, you know, Edward Wood for, for many, many United fans is a man amidst a legend. And what people aren't realizing is that Ollie is slowly coming into the scene. And Woodward is actually going to Ollie and telling him, what's the style of play that you're looking for? What is, what is it that you're trying to achieve? And who are the best two, three players? in that position that you'd want. And depending on that shortlist, Red Woodward then goes out and acts accordingly. Um, what, what I say by acts accordingly, he goes to the scouting department. United have 72 scouts, the most in world football. And he gets scouting reports from some of the scouts there. It goes to Matt Judge and him and Matt Judge discuss what to do. But Oli Solskjaer now has a lot more importance because before it was just so distributed and so fragmented, moving on from Ferguson's 26 years and him doing everything to something a bit more distributed. So I think rightly so, like you guys are saying, there is an identity crisis of some sort, but I do think that Raul and, and Arteta are having that power control gain back if you want and they're making those decisions a lot more informed i'm really excited about arsenal doing the summer because i think again for the first time since since arson left speaking to them it seems like they know where they're going and they know what they're actually doing so it's exciting to see um obviously it's not going to be a chelsea transfer window who um will get on this yet later, but they managed to get Hakim Ziyech and Timo Werner in just because just before the uh, end of the financial window. They're trying to get Ben Chilwell in as well, because in case you didn't know, UEFA's financial fair play, everything was pushed back a year, and deadline to get in transfers for the... Because it got, works in three-year cycles, right? So the deadline to get everything in was by July the 1st. So that's why they're scrambling to get Ben Chilwell in before July the 1st, because as soon as it's July the 1st, everything resets and they have essentially a new budget where they can go after someone like a Kai Havertz. Interesting. That is very upsetting to hear as an Arsenal fan, knowing that I think we're going to be spending too much money. But I think when we talk about Arsenal and the whole identity crisis, the whole boardroom changes and whatnot, I think we, we, we do lose a lot of focus on what's actually happening on the pitch. And 
I'm a big fan of Arteta. I was really excited to see him as manager, you know, even when he was still a, a player at the club. You could always see the way he handled himself, the way he took press conferences. That This is somebody that's going to be a very capable person in charge. But when we talk about how Arsenal are actually playing, I think in recent weeks, it, it's been a bit disappointing. I think Arsenal's problem is we struggle a lot to get into rhythm. Yeah. And then as soon as we get into rhythm, a goal changes that. And you would expect that that would be a goal against it, you know, and that just completely throws everything off. But I've seen that happen with a goal that we score. We score against Brighton and suddenly our foot is off the pedal. And we're suddenly not pressing up as much as we should. We're not putting the same intensity as we should. And you just know that it's inevitable that Arsenal are going to concede. It's like, if you want to win, you, you need to somehow be 2-0, 3-0 up because the club is just going to concede. And the thing with Arteta is, I think that the main difference between him and Emery is you can see what he's trying to do. With Emery, even when the results were going Arsenal's way, there wasn't a clear picture of what he was trying to do. And the stats were terrible. And it, it was very clear that, you know, the results are going to catch up to the performances. We're going to start losing. And that's exactly what happened. But with Arteta, maybe there's a bit more hope because you can see what he's trying to do. But to call the situation what it is, I think how it's been, how we've seen the club recently, I don't think it's been good enough. And and you can make the excuse for a game, say, against Manchester City, that that club is so much better, that they've had weeks to prepare, that they weren't necessarily in the worst of form before, and then they had players like De Bruyne coming back. But Brighton? They've been in terrible form. Their squad is far worse than Arsenal's. I don't think the same excuses can really apply. Arsenal should be beating Brighton. I think the main issue that Arsenal have is we have a non-existing midfield. So people point to David Luiz. People people point to other defenders, you know, Mustafi when he's not performing or whoever. But as bad as they can be, when you have your defense constantly under pressure, attack after attack after attack, you're going to concede. We have mm-hmm. no proper midfield that can take control of the game. And when you have Xhaka, it's, it, it just becomes so much worse. Xhaka, for me, is not a top-tier midfielder. Absolutely. But he's the best midfielder at the club, and that says everything about the club, the situation of the midfield right now. He's most important to our style of play, for sure. Exactly. And and if 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 the player that's not good enough for the ambitions that Arsenal should have, if he's not good enough and he's the best player you have, that just speaks levels about everyone else. Gunduzi, you can see the talent that he has, but very often he's to be blunt you see him like a headless chicken that is unaware of his surroundings yeah he's just ball chasing you have 
Ceballos, who against Manchester City, you saw him, he had a chance to play through Aubameyang, but he doesn't do it. He just likes to go for those short passes and he's very one-footed as well. And it's just the whole case for Arsenal's midfield where we've gone from having, you know, Santi Cazorla, Aaron Ramsey, Mikel Arteta, Meza Ozil, and these types of players, Thomas Rosicki. And we, we've gone to two players that really don't have the technical ability required. And they're not very, you know, they're not like brutes either. They're not very physically gifted. You have Xhaka, who wins a lot of headers as well, but in in, in general... Very flat-footed. Yeah. In, in, in general, though, the, the whole team, is it's not technically talented, it's not physically strong, and you have a case where because that midfield is so poor, you're not able to get a control of the game, and that means that you're not able to get the ball through to your forwards. So they we're not creating much, we're not scoring much. And then the flip side to that is also the fact that because the opposition has so much control of the game, they keep attacking and attacking and attacking. And eventually, no matter how good your defense is, you're probably going to end up conceding. And Arsenal's defense is not good. So that yeah. situation is just much worse. Yeah. I think it's pretty telling that your best midfielder is Granite Xhaka and when Arsenal was actively shopping him the people that were in for him were Borussia Mönchengladbach, his own old team Hertha Berlin so again, a class or two lower than Arsenal that are going in for him and when you take a look at Arsenal the one thing that it's been known for time is they lack any sort of aggression in that midfield you very rightly pointed something out, which is the game passes by them. And as a result, that defence gets penetrated too easily. They're under pressure. And eventually, even the, the best defence, if you're under that much pressure every single game, you're going to concede. I mean, you have to thank the heavens that Bern Leno has actually been outstanding for Arsenal the past couple of months. And you're going to miss him big time now. I don't know how good Emmy Martinez is. I mean, I've seen him play a couple of times and he, he's failed to really impress me. It, it'll be interesting to see just how much worse Arsenal are going to be even after losing well, Paolo Mari. David Luiz' def- confidence is now probably gone. Bernd Leno's out. And that midfield, in all honesty, is not good enough. People are... Big on Matteo Guendouzi, they think he's he shows potential, he's talented. What I see is he's someone that's just a bundle of energy. He's not very disciplined, he doesn't use his head, and he doesn't have good vision. He's got an engine, that's about it. And when evaluating top-tier talent or someone who can be a top-tier talent, you know, you're going to have to have more than an engine. Joe Willock, for me, is... <laughs> I'm not, I don't know what to say. He's, he's, he's not that good in all honesty. So Arsenal need to make sure they get themselves two, three good midfielders going forward. Or just recall Mohamed Elneny from his loan. No? We're not back on the Elneny train? I think, I like Ganduzi. I like him a lot. I like his attitude. And I know that's a very, uh, you know, airy thing to assess when you're talking about actual playing on the pitch. But yes, he's petulant. Yes, he's a child. Yes, 
he grabbed Mopey by the throat after scored the winner and not when he injured Leno. But I really like his character in this Arsenal team, and I think that if he's if he buys into this culture that Arteta's setting, if he can find a place in that midfield, then he can have it for years, especially with seemingly most of the midfield un, you know, under our expectations, under the level of quality needed to play the style of football that we're aiming to play. But I just see a, a squad that was terribly imbalanced from top to bottom that is, uh, that's best players are on the wrong side of 30 and that are earning too much and all have their quite a few expiring contracts. Isn't Luis's contract supposed to expire in like a day? Yeah. I want to go off topic. I don't want to talk about this anymore. Abdurrahman, <laughs> <laughs> what's your biggest story of the week? I was going to talk about Saudi Arabia cracking down on piracy because they want to complete the Newcastle takeover. Because they, they're told if they don't do that, then yeah, that, that basically they're not going to do it. Premier League at least. So are they shutting down the B Out Q channel? Well, that's what they're saying, yeah. So for those of you who don't know, there is a very famous sports network run by the Qatari government, which is called BN Sports. So, and this has absolutely nothing to do with Saudi Arabia. It is a Cuban Colombian mixed investment group that started a sports network called Be Out Q, which may or may not be a joke saying Be Out Qatar, but we shall not go there. So this channel directly streams everything the BN is showing, as in it's literally the same transmission, except for the ads which when the ads are there, it's tourism uh, advertisements of visiting Cuba and whatnot, and then some anti qatar videos. So the Saudi government has claimed it has absolutely nothing to do with them. The problem is, I think... I. What organization is it, the one that declared that it is a part of Saudi Arabia? I think it was the World Trade Organization, actually. But It was, yeah. Yeah, so so the World Trade Organization officially declared the BLQ is property of Saudi Arabia. And this leads to a whole mess. Because Saudi Arabia, the, the, the royal family, members of the royal family, are trying to purchase... Uh, the ownership of Newcastle United. And the Premier League sells its rights for millions, billions of of pounds to, to be in sports. Yeah. So 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 you have a huge issue where obviously be in sports uh, and the Qatar government are not gonna be happy with the sale of Newcastle United to the Saudis when they're pirating what the the Qatari government are paying billions for, so so it's been a whole mess, and there it's it's brought into doubt the Saudi takeover of Newcastle, and apparently, um, Arky mentioned that the Saudis are saying they're going to cut down on the piracy. They did, yes. Yeah, so the Saudi Arabian Football Federation 
have actually acknowledged this responsibility to help tackle broadcast piracy. And uh, the president, uh, Yasser and uh, Han, uh, he basically said that they're trying to be a true partner to, to sport around the world and they're going to crack down on piracy, whether that's from PRQ or any other place that is illegally streaming Premier League games from Saudi Arabia and abroad, actually, as well. So anyone that's illegally watching the Premier League in Saudi Arabia will be IP banned and they're going to shut everything down. So it's one of many reasons why that takeover has actually been been stumbling. So we, we know for a fact that um, Saudis have proposed a what, 300 million pound takeover. Uh, Mike Ashley has actually um, already processed the, the, the paperwork through company's house. Amanda Stavley, obviously, she's, she's been And another major thing is, is the fact that there could be a conflict of interest with Sheffield United. And if people don't know that Sheffield United are partly owned, although it's a minority stake, but it's partly owned by the Saudi government as well. So it's uh, that's uh, somehow a conflict of interest. Now, the Premier League have decided that since it's a minority stake, that they're willing to look past that as long as they sort out the uh, the IP issues. But yeah, anything, any sites that include a group of violations, whether they're downloading or watching movies or series that are broadcasted um, on encrypted channels, they're basically going to be blocked off. I think other than that, taking a look at the short-term contracts, situation. It's something that I touched upon two or three pods ago when I said quite a few players aren't going to sign that short-term extension because there's just so much money riding on their free agency in the summer. Uh, Ryan Fraser is one of them. He's uh, left Bournemouth in a dogfight without arguably their best player. They've not got an easy run of fixtures and Ryan Fraser has decided not to take part in any games for the remainder of the season and he's not going to extend his contract beyond uh, this weekend. We, we've also heard that Jeremy Ngakia, he's starting right back at West Ham. He played five games, I think, so far and he's been offered a contract. He's turning that down. I think the same thing with Matty Longstaff, brother of Sean Longstaff. He's uh, United's... Uh, Bogeyman, he seems to always score against them. Uh, he's going to be, Bogeyman. yep, and he's going to walk away free in the summer, most probably. Um, and he is headed to Udinese, most probably. So more and more players are looking to walk away from that temporary contract because there's not enough added incentive. And yeah. agents have come out and have actually said that beforehand you have to sign players at the very least for six months. And the Premier League didn't take that advice into account and they decided to roll with this. Now, some people have signed short-term extensions and given the grand scheme of things, it's worked out for some players. But for other clubs, I mean, Bournemouth is losing Jaws and Ibe and they're losing out on Ryan Fraser as well. Uh, so that's two players. Yes, Jaws and Ibe isn't a key player, but he's still someone that they could rotate with and, and get something out of yeah um i was just reading before we started the podcast i'm not sure if it's official yet but i think uh, munier signed a, 
a deal with Dortmund. Dortmund, yeah. So he's not going to be appearing in the Champions League for PSG either. Um, it's probably going to be the same for Edinson Cavani. That's two very, very huge players for them that are going to be out, you know. If something happens to yeah. Cardi. Thiago Silva as well. Yeah. But I think with the Thiago Silva, it was more... I think that was more on PSG themselves because they didn't want to offer him a longer contract because they just decided it's it might be time to end the Thiago Silva chapter at PSG. You, you'd rather let go of him now than have him stay for a year. That was too long. But I'm just looking at the whole Cavani situation and, you know, P- PSG had a really good chance. I know we say that every year, but they genuinely had a very good chance at the Champions League this season. And they essentially don't have a choice other than Icardi. I mean, no disrespect to Chupomoting, but just not on that level. Yep. They also lost a very young centre-back, Kwasi. I think he's yeah. pretty much a done deal to Bayern Munich now. Which I found rather strange because the main reason he wanted to leave PSG was to get playing time. And with Thiago Silva leaving, he would have gotten that at PSG, at least to a certain extent. At Bayern, they're completely stacked at the back. So, I mean, they are, but then the success rate of people leaving PSG to go to another club. I mean, he's seen with Kinsey Coma and what he managed to do leaving leaving PSG. I think he's he's taken look. Same thing with, with Mamadou Sako. He's carved himself out a career and he was what he was captain at, at PSG. And it it seems to be a cultural thing. Nkunku's been doing amazing so far. So yeah. Yeah. Uh I think the biggest one is probably Lucelso because just a player that yeah. a big player that PSG Really should not have let go of, but I don't disagree. I think again, it's a cultural thing because I'm taking a look at the club. I mean, you've got Adil Alchichi, he's, he's gonna leave this season, he's probably gonna go to San Etienne to get some playing time. But none of these young players that are coming through the academy ranks are buying into the PSG philosophy. And if they're not able to bring in homegrown talent, then you know, at some point, they need to take a look and reflect. But what do you do as a club with PSG, for example? What can they do? Because it's not that they're not paying their stars well. And it's it's not even a case that they're, they're not even trying to give them game time because they are. So how do you stop players from leaving? It might be a lot of players want to leave the French League because it's not competitive enough. Maybe they have bigger ambitions, but as a club, what do you do there? Do you just try to offer them even more money? What are your thoughts on that? I think it goes back to how the players are treated. And we can't, we, neither I nor you know anyone really can, can vouch for what they're actually doing. But it seems to be that behind the scenes, the players aren't, aren't as valued as what they'd want to be. I mean, Adil quite clearly is, is someone who has an immense amount of talent, but because of the stars that are at PSG, it's very easy to, to forget other people. If you're Paris Saint-Germain, your, my, your, your priority focus is on 
Murray Carly, that he doesn't get sidetracked with, with his personality. It's Neymar, who in himself is, is, is a whole different person. And you've got Kylian Mbappe, who has Real Madrid breathing down his neck every single summer. And ultimately, if you're a big team, you're as good as your big players. And I obviously don't know this for certain, and I can't speak to this for certain, but it's very easy for PSG to take their eye off the ball and forget about reaching out to their young players as much as they should. Some more hugs, basically. Basically, yeah. You're talking about a generation that needs to be more in touch. They need to feel like they're involved, that they're loved, and they're a part of the big vision and the big future going forward. I mean, if you were an academy player at PSG and you saw the team splurging hundreds of millions of pounds every so often on the next big thing, would you really have faith that your development would be valued and emphasized on? Especially when you're talking about a team whose greatest ambition is to win the Champions League and their their uh, their path to getting there seems to just be throwing money at the problem every year. So they get closer and closer. So until they win the Champions League, I don't think they can even make that claim to the young players coming up to stick around. Plus, I just don't take PSG yeah. seriously as a club. Like, it's a reality TV experiment, you know? It's not real. I don't know. Like, <laughs> I think you, you've made a good point. Well, PSG went out in the summer. They signed Ander Herrera on a free. And they signed uh, Idrissa Gay as well. Two players that play in the position of, of Hao Chichi. Now, yes, he's getting some games, but for him, he feels like he's ready. And Sanatian have come in and they said, we'll bring you in. You'll start for us. We're a good team. And he thinks that, okay, if I make that sideways step to, or maybe a downward step to, to Sanatian, but I play regular game time, then I can make that step up to another very good team. And here I'm just going to speculate, because if I was controlling P- PSG in FIFA career mode, I don't mind him making that sidestep, because I'll just sign him back later. You know, I, My budget's insane. I'll just uh, let Ander Herrera become the 73 player he's destined to become, and then I'll sign him right back, as long as he's staying in Ligue 1, you know? You maybe include a buyback clause in the contract. That's what I was about to say. You take a look at Madrid and how many times they, they've used buyback clauses. And yeah, Alvaro Morata's obviously one that they've sold on and then bought back. I think Ashraf Hakimi is going to be another one very soon. Well, I think what Madrid have going for them is the sort of way they've marketed themselves over the years to be the final destination, the top destination for where players want to end up. So if they went to Madrid and didn't want to work out, they're still the final goal. As in, if you didn't make it, you are still working hard in your career to get back and become a starter at at Madrid. Because you look at the case with Morata, for example. It's not that he went to some poor club. He went to Juventus and he was getting good playing time. And it, it was pretty clear that, you know, at Madrid, he's not going to become the next big striker. He could have stayed at Juventus, but he chose uh, to sign for Madrid when they came back in for him. And it, it's the same thing you'll see with, with many other players that if they get a chance to sign for Madrid, even if they've already been at the club, they're not going to turn it down. I don't think PSG has that. 
they don't have the history, they don't have the cultural significance, they don't have, yeah, exactly, any of that. That takes they a long time to build. Yeah, they have the money, but yeah, it's not everything. Right. Thank you so much, Mahmoud, for joining us, and Abdurrahman, you too as well. And thank you, everyone, who tuned in to listen to us. If you have any feedback, you can drop us a message at trappedoffsidepodcast.gmail.com or you can follow us on Twitter at trappedoffpod. Thank you and goodbye.